open them to the book of Esther, chapter 2, verse 20, verse 19. Esther, chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. There is a one phrase that many kids in this room have uttered this week or this morning, this week, or this month. And it's one phrase that many adults have said, felt, or even posted uh, on social media. And, and that phrase is this, that's not fair. If you're a parent, you hear this, this phrase all the time, that's not fair. So if you've said that or felt that this week, won't you just raise your hands if you said that this week or felt that life isn't, come on now, that's not fair. Yes, every child should be raising their hands. I know you said it and thought it. And so we, we feel these words and we say these words, we post these words because we, when we perceive someone or something is against us. We use this phrase when we think our rights and our freedoms are being violated. We say them when a person gets something we don't. We all have said that's not fair at some point. And because life is in shades of gray, life will always be unfair. And so here's the point. Kids, life isn't fair. Adults, life isn't fair. Teens, life isn't fair. I found a quote online this week that says, Dear life, I have a complete grasp on the fact that you're not fair, so please stop teaching me that lesson. <laughs> I've got some bad news. It's not going to stop teaching you that lesson. And it's not going to stop reminding you that it's not fair. And the lesson is, is going to continue today through the book of Esther. We're going to see Mordecai face some situations in which he can say that's not fair. We're going to see him in, in some circumstances when he can say those three little words. And there are two questions I want you to take to heart and to think about throughout today's message. The first question is this. What do you do when life isn't fair? And two, where is God when life isn't fair towards you? What do you do when life isn't fair? And where is God when life isn't fair to you? So if you have your Bible, Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bitha and Therese, two of the king's units who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Erxes. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, when the affairs were investigated and found to be true, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was, was, was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And in these days, King Erxes promoted Haman, uh, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were there. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to him. For the king has so commanded concerning him. 
But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. He told, they told Haman in order to see where Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when, Mordecai, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down and pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury and destined to lay hands on none of Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Please pray with him for me. Father God, this truth is your truth. This is not the words of, of, of just men, but this is history. These words, these things that, that we've been studying in the book of Esther happen, Lord. I know they are distant from us and we can't really relate to, to what has taken place here. But, Lord, it happened in history. It's part of your history. It's part of the history of your people. And this word, though it's difficult, though we don't always see how it relates to our life, it has meaning for our life. It has purpose in our life. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would guide the preaching of the word and that Christ would be magnified in it and his people would be encouraged through it. And I pray for all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Good Times is one of my wife's favorite, favorite all-time shows. Mine as well. And if you know the show, it follows Florida and James Evans and their three kids. And if you know the show, you know they live in 2921 Gilbert Avenue, apartment 17C, in the inner city of Chicago. And in one episode, James finds a brown paper bag filled with stolen money, $27,000 that was stolen from a local supermarket. And so James wanted to keep the money. I don't blame him. He found it. Someone stole it but lost it, and he found it. And so he and the family go back and forth on what should he do with the stolen money that he found on the street? Should he turn it in? Should they keep it because the family really needed the money? So him and Florida go back and forth and back and forth. And so eventually he decides to turn in the money, hoping that he would get rewarded for his good deed. So the supermarket, you know, is overjoyed when James turns in the money, overjoyed by his good deed and his honesty. So they held a press conference, and, and in this press conference, they give James this, this nice plaque to show their appreciation for him. And then they also say be, they're going to give him a substantial financial reward as another token of their appreciation for his good deed. How much money do you think they gave James as a token of their appreciation? $5,000? 2500 1000 they gave him a gift certificate for $50 worth of groceries. <laughs> I and mean, that's the definition of this essential financial reward. And you can imagine how James probably felt and how I probably would have felt, now, that's not fair. That's not fair. In Esther 2, 19-23, Mordecai does a good deed. A good deed that goes unnoticed a good deed that's not rewarded. And he, and he's prob- and this, and he's, he, gets, he does this good deed because he's in the position to do so. And like his cousin Esther, he has a position in the Persian court at this point. Remember, Queen, Esther is queen of Persia right now. And Mordecai is an official in this court. Look at verse 21. 
It says, in those days, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. The, the gate is an entrance into a building where all legal and civil and commercial business is conducted within the capital of Susa. And only those who have an official role within the court is allowed to sit at the king's gate. So Mordecai has such a position. He's an official. He has a government job is the point. He's working for the man. And like his cousin, he's part of the system now. He's part of the system. And one day while he was sitting at this gate, he learns of a plot to assassinate the king. He learns of a plot to assassinate the king. He discovers that the plan of two of the king's eunuchs who were so angry with the king that they plan to take his life. And the author doesn't tell us how Mordecai learns this knowledge. He simply says it came, comes to the knowledge of Mordecai that these two eunuchs are going to plan to assassinate King Erxes. What would he do with this information? What would you do with this information? Sit on it. Hide it. Say it's none of my business and keep moving on with your life. Keep the information to yourself and let them go ahead and execute their plan. What would you do? Try to persuade these men not to do this evil deed? Mordecai doesn't sit on the information. He doesn't try to persuade them not to execute their plan either. Instead, he ruins their plan. He tells Queen's, Queen Esther about this plan to kill the king. He saves the king's life. He does a good deed. And his cousin tells the king about it. She tells the king, in the name of Mordecai, this is what's going to happen. And she does that because she wants Mordecai to get credit, okay? She wants him to be rewarded for passing along this vital information. The, the affair is investigated, found to be true, and these two men are sentenced to death. And the whole account is written in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. But notice what's missing. Mordecai is overlooked. His good deed is not acknowledged. He's not recognized. He appears to go unnoticed. And Karen Jobs, in, in her commentary on the book of Esther, says, Acts of loyalty were usually rewarded immediately and generously by Persian kings. But Mordecai's reward was apparently overlooked. The king doesn't show him any appreciation. Now, author doesn't tell us how Mordecai reacts to this old being overlooked. No hint, no clue. But this experience of being overlooked can lead him and most people to say those three words. What's the three words? That's not fair. Have you ever been overlooked? Have you ever been Overlooked. Have you ever felt unappreciated? Have you ever felt you were not recognized for all the good that you do in your home, in your job, in your community? Have people just overlooked you? And did you get into your feelings when that happens? At some point in your life, you will be overlooked for something. At some point in your life, you ain't always going to be appreciated for things that you do. Your good deeds will go unnoticed at some point in your life. And you will say, think, and feel those three little words. That's not fair. And parents should know this. Kids don't appreciate nothing you do. You will say it. And remember those two questions I asked you at the beginning. What do you do when life isn't fair? And where is God when life isn't fair? If you are a believer today, 
then your first response to the unfairness of life is always Jesus. Always Jesus. Don't forget about him when life is unfair to you. You have to remember, what did he do for you? What did he do for you on the cross? He sacrificed himself for you. And when you rest and surrender to him in faith, you're fully forgiven. That means you belong to him. He belongs to you. And Jesus does life with his people. Okay? He does life with you. That means you don't have to experience the unfairness of life by yourself. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus is with you when life is unfair to you? Are you sure you believe it? Because no one's saying anything. So, <laughs> is Jesus with you at this moment in all the unfairness that you're going through? Please take your unappreciated experiences to Christ. When you're overlooked, go to him. When you're not valued, go to him. When people let you down, go to him. When people overlook you, go to him. I'm not just talking about enemy. I'm talking about when people you love do these things to you, go to him. Go to him. Let him minister to you through other people. Let him minister to you through the word and through the spirit. Let him reveal to you what you don't see about yourself. And ask him for guidance on how you need to respond to these experiences. doesn't mean you have to be silent about it. Ask him to give you the courage and the boldness to respond to these things in a way that are healthy, not unhealthy. God is still faithful, even in the unfairness of life. Now, it's easy to believe that when you think life is fair. But when you're in the thick of unfairness, it's going to be hard for you to believe that. I'm here to tell you he's faithful. His providence is at work in your life, even when you can't see it, feel it, or touch it. It's at work, always at work. In the workplace, there's, there's one word that has a lot, lots of shades of gray about it in the workplace environment. It's a word that some employees idolize. It's a word that some employees will shy away from. It's a word that employees will, will compete with each other over. It's a word that gets employees into their feelings. It's, it's a word that can lead to workplace gossip and, and slander. It's a word that can lead to praise. And that word is promotion. Promotion, promotion, promotion. And a promotion raises the status of an employee who receives it. Now, are all promotions in your company given out fairly? Does the most deserving person always get the promotion? No. Have you ever seen someone get promoted and you wonder to yourself, what did that person do? I mean... What did they do to deserve the promotion? Now, I can see this person, but this person? Come on! The whole company's going down. Now, if you never said that, you've not been honest with yourself. You've not been honest with yourself. What do you do? What happens? I mean, come on. In the next session of Esther, in the next section, in chapter 3, we're going to see an individual get a promotion from King Xerxes. This will be our first introduction to this individual. The author introduces him by highlighting his promotion. In verse 1, after these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman. Promoted Haman. The author doesn't give us the context of 
how he was promoted. It doesn't tell us why he promote, why he was promoted. Doesn't, we don't know what he did to deserve the promotion. The author seems to be making a contrast between Mordecai's lack of recognition and the recognition that Haman receives from the king. Remember, Mordecai doesn't get recognized for saving the king's life. But this person is elevated without reason, given an out-of-the-blue promotion. The king elevates Haman's rank, his position among the other officials. Now, his power and his privilege and his prosperity has been elevated above all the other government officials in the court. And then the king has made Haman the second most powerful person in the kingdom. Please know that. Advance him, set his throne above all the other officials who were with him. That means he's the second most powerful person within the kingdom. But then the king gives an executive order to all the other officials that all must bow down and pay homage to Haman. They must honor him and show him respect. He commands them to do so. Doesn't say whether or not Haman deserves this stuff. The king says, I'm commanding you to respect him and to honor him. What would you do at this point if you're Mordecai? What would you do at this point if you wanted the other officials where you obey the king's command? That's what you do. The other officials, they, they bow down and pay homage to Haman, but Mordecai does not. He refuses to show honor and respect to Haman. He refuses to bow down and pay homage to his superior. He refuses to obey the king's executive order. And the other officials, they, they would try to persuade Haman day after day to, to comply with the king's command. But Haman would not listen to them. The more they pressed him, the more they talked with him, the more he resisted. He refused. He said, I'm not going to do it. It's a point. He's not going to bow down to Haman. Look at verse 3. Let me find it. I need a large print Bible. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. Would not listen to them. And so they decided to go tell Haman about it. You can't blame them going to the superior because if they have to follow the rules, shouldn't Mordecai have to follow the rules? If they have to bow down to Haman, shouldn't Mordecai have to bow down to Haman? So they go tell Haman that Mordecai is refusing the king's command. He's refusing to, 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 to bow down and pay respect to you. He's been insubordinate. So they go tell Mordecai that Haman, they go to tell Haman that Mordecai seems to think the rules doesn't apply to him. And so they go tell him. And then Haman sees for himself that Mordecai is insubordinate. And he's filled with so much anger, so much hate, that he decides to get revenge. And so now, within this Persian court, you have an issue between this high-ranking official and this low-ranking official. You have this conflict between Haman and Mordecai. Personal drama, workplace drama, and some of you can relate. 
to workplace drama. Correct? Why do you think Mordecai refused to bow down and pay homage to Haman? And that's an honest question. Why? Is his refusal based on religious conviction? Does it go against his values? Does he refuse out of envy or jealousy? Does he refuse because he's mad with the king for overlooking his good deed? No, you see, this bowing down and paying homage in the Persian court isn't worship or religious. It's a way that they show honor and respect to one another. And Karen Jobs in her commentary suggests that Mordecai's refusal is not religiously motivated, but it's personal and specific to Haman. The author provides reasons why Mordecai doesn't refuse to the king's command. If you notice in verse 1, Haman is introduced as an Agagite back in verse 1. It means he's a descendant of King Ag, king of the Malachites. Then in chapter 2, verse 5, Mordecai is introduced as Mordecai the Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. He's a descendant of King Saul. And if you ever read through the book of Exodus, then you know that the Israelites and the Malachites have bad history. Bad history. There's blood between them. A historical conflict between the two tribes. And if you read through 1 Samuel, you know that King Saul defeated King Hag. And so there's this ancient tribal conflict between the Jews and the Malachites. And this old century conflict has been relived through this personal conflict between Haman and Mordecai. A personal past conflict has been brought to the present. And so for our life, the question is this. What past pain animosity, and hostilities with people you've brought into the present. Look at your life. What past hurts have you brought into the present? Who you haven't spoken to in years because of what they did to you in the past? What past hurts you just can't get over? Who are your ancient foes, your ancient enemies? We all have it. We all have them. See, all of us, myself included, we have what I call a that's not fair filing cabinet. And in this filing cabinet is a historical accounts of everything that has happened to us in which we said that's not fair. So the question is, what's in your filing cabinet? Who is in your filing cabinet? Who? What pain have you filed away? What betrayal have you filed away? What injustice have you filed away? What abuse have you filed away? What discrimination have you filed away? What heartbreak have you filed away? How many files do your mama and daddy have in your filing cabinet? How many? What are you still blaming them for? You say, that's not fair. You still hold on to it. How many files do your spouse have in your filing cabinet? Come on, you got files in your spouse. Don't pretend like you don't. Your kids, your ex, your boss, your landlord, the government, your teachers, your pastor, your in-laws. Who's in the filing cabinet? Who's done something to you in the past that you bring it into the present? And you're still saying, that's not fair. That's not fair. 